From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home and allowing me into your head. And thank you, as always, for your ears and your voices. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Here's an interesting story I've just posted to richardserrett.com, and it's entitled, 16 Signs You Are a Slave to the Matrix. You pay taxes to people you'd like to see locked up in jail. <laughs> Bang in at uh, number one uh, on the um, website, uh, which is wake, wakingtimes.com. Wakingtimes.com, and the webmaster who posted this or wrote this is a staff writer who goes by the name of Dr. Sigmund Fraud. So, uh, number one, you uh, you pay taxes to people you'd like to see locked up in jail. Uh, number two, you work hard doing something you hate to earn fiat dollars. Work is important and money does pay the bills. However, so many people lose the best years of their lives doing things they hate just for money. The truth about money today is that we do not have money, but instead inflationary fiat currency that is privately owned and manipulated. Ain't that the truth? Uh, and one more. Of the 16 signs, you are a slave to the matrix. You don't have anything to hide from total surveillance. Have you ever caught yourself saying this or heard someone else say this? Well, if you have nothing to hide, why are you worried about total surveillance? If it does not bother you that someone, somewhere, working for somebody is watching you, listening to your conversations and monitoring your movements, then you are a good slave to the matrix. Invisible surveillance is an insidious form of thought control, and by using the logic of, I have nothing to hide, therefore it will do me no harm to be surveilled, then you are mindlessly admitting that you have an earthly master and are not of sovereign mind and body. Anyway, great piece compiled by a staff writer at wakingtimes.com who goes by the name of Sigmund Fraud. <laughs> anyway, once again, posted that to richardserrett.com and I've tweeted it as well, at Richard Serrett. Make sure when you visit richardserrett.com that you register. It's quick and easy, and once I get to that magic number, 500 subscribers, I'll start sending out a weekly newsletter. But I won't do it until we get to at least 500 so if you haven't already done so, please register richardserrett.com. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, will be along later in the hour for our paranormal news roundup. Some remarkable stories in the paranormal news arena, uh, including some rather chilling video footage taken from what appears to be a security surveillance camera uh, in which someone is accosted, uh, in fact knocked down by a rather shadowy-looking figure and then dragged down the corridor. So very anxious to get Rosemary's take on that. And uh, scientists are heralding a new vampire therapy as a means of reversing the aging process. Vampire therapy. What, pray tell, is that? Uh, and wait till you hear about the living mummies of Japan, all up and coming on The Conspiracy Show when Rosemary Ellen Guiley joins us a little bit later. Hey, uh, you know, you read the newspaper, you look at what's going on around the world, and you've probably thought to yourself, is this world run by psychopaths? I know I think that all the time. Uh, and it, the question is, is the reason that there's so much sorrow and suffering in the world due to, is it natural causes, or is it because a small percentage of the population that have some peculiar mental illness 
have taken control of our society. There's a, a video I saw recently online that's getting a lot of attention, and it's a mini-documentary on how we can defend ourselves against psychopaths. In fact, that's the title, Defense Against Psychopaths. And uh, it's it's offered, as the name implies, as a defense strategy for personal safety. The video also shows the logical consequences these psychopaths have on society as a whole. Uh, and it shows psychopaths not just as the uh, sort of stereotypical insane serial killers seen in the movies, uh, but this is the most disturbing part. The psychopaths really might be your boss, your church leader, God forbid, and even your political leader. Could it be a malevolent, all of these people rather, uh, political leaders, bosses, church leaders, they could all be malevolent and heartless predators, psychopaths. Uh, the filmmaker is with us right now, and his name is Stefan Verstappen. He's the creator of this video documentary entitled Defense Against a Psychopath, which is based on the first chapter of his book, The Art of Urban Survival. Defense Against the Psychopath is a how-to instructional video that explains the types, characteristics, modus operandi of the most ruthless predators on the planet. Stefan is a, a writer, a martial arts expert, and, uh, as I say, the author of uh, a number of books, including The Art of Urban Survival. Hey, Stefan, how are you? I'm fine, Richard. Thanks for having me on. You know, it's interesting that this week is actually uh, Emergency Preparedness Week. And last week on the program, I, uh, I spoke with um, Michael Malouf, uh, who wrote a book on what he sees the likelihood of an impending EMP event, electromagnetic uh, pulse event, which could knock power grids off uh, around the continent. We could be offline, freezing in the dark for years, possibly, and all of the social unrest that obviously would ensue. And and then I spoke with Stan Deo, who is a, an emergency preparedness uh, expert, talking about preparing for, for natural uh, disasters and even man-made disasters like a, a, an EMP that could be caused by a, the detonation of a nuclear device at a high altitude. The first chapter... In your book, The Art of Urban Survival, talks about something that we don't necessarily think of trying, you know, defending ourselves against, and that is the psychopath, defense against the psychopath. How did you begin thinking about this as sort of a, a societal threat that we should all be dealing with? Well, it was uh, when I was writing my second or uh, my, my latest book, The Art of Urban Survival. And I intended to write this as the ultimate self-defense and survival guide for people living in the big city. I was a martial arts instructor for a number of years. I would lived in China. I'd studied Kung Fu all over Asia. And uh, when I came back to Canada, I was teaching martial arts, you know, in the evenings. And, and you're often requested for a self-defense course. And so I would teach a self-defense course. But to be honest with you, if you found yourself in a dark alley having to use self-defense techniques against an attacker, you failed. You've failed three times already. You failed in strategy. You failed in spotting the trouble and evading it. You failed in escaping it, and you failed in thinking your way out of it. To me, violence against violence is absolutely the last resort anybody should have to uh, resort to in defending themselves. But what I couldn't teach in a self-defense class, which is, you know, focused on, obviously, on kicking and punching and things like that, what I couldn't focus on is something that we've all heard before, and that was 
and that is called street smarts. Um, to be aware of your surroundings, to know how things work and how predators work, that knowledge will, will, will save you in more cases than learning how to punch or kick will ever sell, uh, save you. But how to teach that? So I began by you know, giving handouts to my class on, on strategies that I had learned when I researched my first book, which is called The uh, 36 Strategies of Ancient China which is a book very similar to The Art of War by Sun Tzu and uh, lists a bunch of ancient uh, Chinese strategies and tactics and historical anecdotes that illustrate those. So strategy and tactics is a very important thing to learn, but I couldn't teach that because when you learn strategy and tactics for the city, what you are learning is really street smarts. So I began writing The Ultimate survival guide for you know uh, people in, living in the big city and I broke down the threats that you would face living in the urban jungle and it is a jungle it's the same as the Amazon jungle or the Congo or the Malaysian rainforest we cannot escape nature and so even though we're not out in the woods we still have to follow the rules of nature and the city is in itself a type of jungle it's an environment Maybe even more dangerous, because I would I would argue, uh, Stefan, that at least out in the wilderness, animals are creatures of habit. They are more or less predictable. But well, a psychopath <laughs> is, I would, I don't know, you disabuse me of this, I would say, you know, somewhat unpredictable. Well, you hit the nail right on the head, Richard, and that is that our environment is more dangerous. You're more likely to get... Um, to die in the big city than you are if you were to go into the Amazon rainforest. So the first thing that you need to know is what are the predators of our jungle? You know, if you go camping up north, you know to be aware of the black bears, and, and there's precautions and things you can do, and, and of course the incidence of black bear attacks on campers here in Ontario is very minimal, maybe once every 15 years. So your chances of being attacked by a predator in the woods, in the wilderness of northern Ontario, is very slim. But your chances of being attacked by a predator in the city is very high. As a matter of fact, we are being attacked and abused daily by predators. We just don't know it. And so what is the premier predator, the apex predator within the human society? And that predator is the psychopath. And I came across the psychopath from uh, researching my first book, The 36 Strategies, because to illustrate the principles of these strategies, I wanted to give readers a historical true story, you know, a short story that right, right. that uh, explains how this famous general, whether it was a Chinese emperor or a Japanese shogun, how he used that strategy and how he succeeded. But I'm reading all these stories, and... I was originally going to include Roman history and English history and things like that. So I, I began reach, researching Roman and, and European history and, and Greek history and reach, researching the great generals, the great strategists, you know, Alexander the Great and, and uh, uh, well, uh, Hannibal and uh, Africanus and Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan, you know. Until I realized while I was researching this, and I was also thinking about doing maybe a little book on leadership, too, because I'm reading about all these you know, famous historical leaders. What can they teach me about leadership? So I'm keeping an eye out for leadership techniques as well. And I realized I came to an, a conclusion with myself that I would not make a good leader. I do not have what it takes to be, ever become a king or, or a prince 
or lead an army because I do not have that streak of cruelty, that indifference to human suffering that all these characters had. I mean, you read the stories of, of their lives and the, the suffering they caused and the numbers of people that they murdered and the torture and the bloodshed. It, it boggles the mind over 2,000 years of history and always the same pattern, Richard, the same pattern. You know, right, right. these people, what, were they all separated at birth? <laughs> you know, no, they're the same. So what is that pattern? And, and, and why is it that people with this psychological behavior system always manage to become the emperors and the kings? And, right. And why the do the psychopaths rise to the top? Why do they rise to the top? Well, you know, the biggest the big breakthrough came for me when I read Robert Hare's famous book, um, Without Conscience. And, of course, Robert Hare is a Canadian researcher based out of uh, British Columbia, and he wrote the seminal book, the most modern, up-to-date book, on the psychopath. And he is the first one to dispel the myth that psychopaths are all serial killers and, and locked up behind bars when they're not serial killing. He brought us the awareness that psychopaths probably make up the majority population of leaders within our society. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, so, and when reading the history as well, you know, it, it, time and time you can see the same uh, uh, strategy, the same advantage that these people have played over and over. For example, if there's a, a dynastic dispute and two brothers are vying for the throne, well, guess who gets to become king? It's the brother who first commits um, murder on his own brother. Actually. Richard III, uh, as an example. I mean, Shakespeare's go, plays are, are littered with, with these uh, psychopaths. And Exactly. You know, so me, could I murder my brother? I, the thought would never occur to me. I would not, and even if I could, I would never be able to live with myself and show my face. You know, most of us couldn't contemplate uh, those types of actions. Right. We all tend to think of, of the psychopaths, the obvious ones, like Hitler, like Stalin. Uh, but today, they wear Armani suits. Uh, you know, they don't uh, uh, march around in jack boots and, and uh uh, you know, aren't, aren't readily apparent necessarily. They're very, they can be very charming and, and uh, have all the outward appearances of being a good person. And yet, somewhere deep, what was it Carl Jung said about, you know, the bigger the one sort of, uh, um, the outward appearance of goodness, maybe the, the greater the, 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 the dark shadow that resides within. Yes, I know, exactly. Let um, me take a, a time out here, uh, sure. Stefan, and we'll uh, come back and continue to talk about defense against the psychopath, writer, adventurer, and preparedness expert Stefan Verstappen, the author of The Art of Urban Survival, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Stefan Verstappen, a Toronto-based writer, preparedness expert, adventurer, and author of The Art of Urban Survival. The first chapter of that book is Defense Against the Psychopath, which has been turned into an, a how-to instructional video uh, that has gone viral online. And uh, let, let's um, just back up a minute. What is there a, a clinical definition of a psychopath? And, and what's the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath? Well, first of all, the difference between psychopath and sociopath is pretty blurred, and I personally don't make a difference in my writing with that. Um, 
and a lot of the other researchers on, on psychopath, or psychopathy um, don't um, really differentiate too much. It used to mean, and in some versions it means, a sociopath is more likely to have a large criminal or a long criminal record, and a uh, psychopath would tend to be uh, uh, without a criminal record, meaning they're more professional and they're able to escape the consequences. But the two, you know, it's, a, it's really a matter of semantics, and uh, the important thing to understand is the, the chief characteristics that they all exhibit, whether you want to call them a psychopath or a sociopath or a pathological narcissist or antisocial personality disorder. There's all kinds of descriptives used to describe basically an essential condition, and that condition is that these people feel no empathy. They do not have an emotional connection with other human beings. And so because of that, they're in a sense very powerful because the inhibitions that the rest of us feel and labor under they don't have. They are free to lie and cheat and uh, manipulate and steal and rob. It doesn't bother them. They don't get nervous about doing that. If you and I were to say, think about, geez, you know, should I take home a, a tablet of paper from the office? We already start to get nervous because, you know, we're pilfering office supplies. All right. I, you know, I wouldn't do it. Firstly, I, don't, I wouldn't steal a, a pen from the office because my guilty feelings isn't worth the goddamn pen. Or, or should I... Should I lie uh, about my the, 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 the person that I'm running against uh, in the municipal election uh, and slander that person in order to further my own political ambitions? Well, exactly. Exactly. So if you don't have any inhibitions about that, you become a very convincing liar. And then the more outrageous you, li you lie, the more people will believe you because normal people would think to themselves, Good God, if this guy was lying, he would be so over the top, he would have to, you know, sweat or be nervous or betray, uh, betray some telltale yes. uh, tick that would tell you he's lying. Isn't it, didn't Himmler, was it Himmler, or, uh, no, I think it was Joseph Goebbels who said, that, you know, the bigger the lie, the more likely people are to believe it. Yeah, I meant, I, that's a great quote. I think you're right with, the, with Himmler, I think it was him, and uh, I think he paraphrased somebody else, too, about that. But, um, yeah, that, that's, it's true because why, why would you believe the bigger lie instead of the smaller lie? The reason is that all of us will tell small lies. I, too, I, I, I lie as well. You know, somebody says, geez, does this jacket look good on me? You know, yeah, it looks great, wonderful, you know. Um, so small little white lies we all tell. We have to. It's part of our, you know, uh, our social interaction. And, and there's no harm done because nobody's being disadvantaged by our lies and deception. However, and so when somebody does tell a small lie, we are more willing to believe that they're lying because they're telling a small lie, we tell small lies, so we're able to believe that. However, when, uh, or able to not believe it, however, when somebody tells a big lie, we could not ourselves feel comfortable with that level of deception, and so we would feel nervous. And so therefore, if somebody tells us that huge a lie and they do not seem nervous, uh, well, we tend to believe it. You right, know, how, right. How, how could they say that if it wasn't true? Okay, we, we talked about lack of empathy. Uh, what are some of the uh, the other characteristics of a psychopath? And we won't have time maybe to get to touch on all of them in detail, but let's just uh, name them. Well, lack of remorse. You know, so without empathy, they have no guilt feelings, and so there's nothing to keep them up at night. 
you know, um, I once gave some advice to a young man about something, and it ended up costing him $200 he didn't need to spend. To this day, that was 30 years ago. I still feel bad that I gave him that wrong advice, and it cost him 200 bucks. Now, these psychopaths will engage in activities that doesn't just cost people a couple of hundred bucks, will cost thousands of people their lives, that will destroy tens of thousands of families driven to poverty, driven to suicide, drug addiction, uh, divorce, and, and that night they go to sleep, doesn't bother them. It's like nothing ever happened, and they can do that day after day, and they sleep fine. They, they still go to the store. They have a, a healthy appetite in the morning when they wake right. up. They'll have right. extra bacon with their eggs. You know, And they you know, justify it. The, the ends justify the means. Exactly, and the ends is to get what they want. Right. That is the end. And so so long as they get what they want, any means is justified. Or in the political arena, it's for the greater good. Well, that's the story they tell us. Of course, for the psychopath in the political arena, it's for their greater good. And that's why psychopaths tend to rise to the tops of, of, of social structures. Whatever social structure that would be, if there is a hierarchy, right. then the sociopath will tend to rise. Because, for example, I, I, I was walked into the office about six months ago, and um, my sales manager, he said, I said to my sales manager, I said, you know, I could have your job in three days if I wanted to. And he said, what? I said, simple. I said, I would plant some cocaine in your desk drawer. Then I would upload some child porn to your computer when you weren't looking. Then I'd go rat you out to the boss. I said, you tried denying the cocaine in your desk drawer and the child porn on your computer. I said, I'll have your job in three days. There you go. Hey, that's how Lyndon Johnson ran his political campaigns. (laughs) Yeah, that's how they all run their political campaign. That's why they have all these parties where they're all snorting coke and and, and watching child porn, or worse, the pedophilia rings. That's why they do it. But Johnson, I mean, perfected that. I mean, he brought it to an art form. He would throw out these outlandish lies about uh, one of his political opponents in Texas, and his campaign manager would say, you can't say that. He He never did that. He said, it doesn't matter. I just want to hear him deny it. Exactly. You know, uh, uh, the psychopath, it's often said, is the person that will slap you in the face, then run to the teacher and cry that he was attacked. Oh, devious. Absolutely And so devious. when you gum, come there to say, wait a minute, he slapped me in the face, who's going to believe you? No, the psychopath was already there, bawling his eyes out with a good story about how you attacked him. There so, also, so the, there, there's an, an element of, of I mean, the, there's, there's intelligence behind the deviousness. Well, there is, you know, there is, Richard... Uh, in the video I describe, and, and from what I, my research, is that psychopathy is like somebody that has you know, lost a limb. So they will be lost that part, that component of their being that makes them human. They just really don't have it. But all the other factors that determine a, a, a human are still in place. So in other words, you can have genius psychopaths and you can have stupid psychopaths. You can have uh, um, creative psychopaths, and you can have uh, sadistic, uh, masochistic psychopaths, and everything in between. So there are some very smart psychopaths, and even the stupid psychopath has an advantage over good and honest people, even people that are smarter than them, because even though you might be smarter than, than one of these psychopaths, your um, misunderstanding of what they are is their advantage. The fact that you don't know what they are and how they operate puts you at such a disadvantage that even if you are 
you know, 20 points smarter on the IQ scale than some average psychopath, they will still be able to fool you and trick you. You know what's really tragic is, in, in, in a sense, because these psychopaths rise to the top, uh, we're all, as a society, somewhat responsible because we allow the rules of the game that, that determines who is successful and who is not successful and who becomes the president or the prime minister. I mean, we're responsible for those rules, in, in, a, in, a, in a sense, so we're allowing this to happen. Well, you know, that's true, and I've heard that argument before, and I'm on both sides of the argument. The first facet, or the first part of that argument is that, or, or, or in laying the blame for the condition of society, is that the rest of us have to assume responsibility for following evil people around. You know, we do have to, you know, admit that our support of these political leaders and, and, and business leaders and our support of companies and, and purchasing products and going to certain stores and things, we support a psychopathic agenda by doing so. And we are therefore equally responsible for all the ills in the world. However, I want to forgive my fellow man to a certain degree because we are not fully human beings anymore. We are like a dog that has been beaten and kept in a cage. And what happens to a dog when you beat them and keep them in the cage is they become vicious and they become paranoid and they, they, you know, they tremble in the corner and they're fearful and they're pathetic creatures. And that's what's happened to us as a species. The psychopaths have been in charge for so long, starting off with the whole, you know, priesthood and the, and the kingship system with the whole, you know, the royal bloodline, whatever the hell that meant, why people would die for some genetic psychopathic family line is beyond my comprehension. But that's what went on for 2,000 years. But what the result is that we were never uh, given a full chance to bloom or, or to grow into fully mature spiritual human beings because we were, from the day we were born, conditioned and programmed and beaten and trained and conditioned to accept psychopaths as our leaders and to admire psychopathic values. So, how uh, in, the, in the couple minutes that remain... How do we defend against the psychopath? Let's bring it down to a, a, a level that we can all appreciate, and that's the boss who has the corner office, the big desk, the window, uh, his own uh, you know, executive assistant. And he, we know that that person got there because they're a psychopath. They lied, they cheated, uh, they bullied. How do we defend against that? Well, the best defense is to run away. It's really hard to fight a, a, a psychopath, and especially one that's in a position of power like that. There's a saying in, in, in Sun Tzu that writes that you don't, the, the secret to success is you never fight a battle you can't win. And fighting the boss in the corner office is a battle you cannot win. Unless you are so devious and ruthless that you can compete with them. In other words, if you can fake evidence against them and you can blackmail them and you can uh, uh, set them up and frame them for something or... If you are really charming and you can somehow convince the board of directors or the shareholders or whoever's above the boss that, and make a substantial case for that person being a psychopath and having him removed, you're not going to win. And those two options, they're not open for people. They just aren't, you know, it, it just, it, you have to be too hard to pull that off. Your best bet, I'm, I'm sorry to say, is to uh, start sending out your resume and as soon as you get a better job offer, get the hell out. Okay, but let's now assume that the psychopath is the 
mayor. <laughs> <laughs> no names. <laughs> Courts, uh, coke snorting and uh, crack smoking. Yeah, part of the you know a psychopath's uh, uh, list of things to do. You know. Um, I mean, you could say you get defeated them at the ballot box, but the the odds are that the person that they're running against must have a little bit of that streak too, because. That's Absolutely. where they, you know, they didn't get there by being the nice guy either. No, exactly. You know, we're, that's why I say we're in a bad situation. We cannot take them on directly right now. Not in this point in our history. We can't. The only thing we can do as citizens of this country is the opposite of what the psychopaths want. So what do they want? They want you to be mindless, obedient slaves. So think for yourself. For God's sakes, research everything. Learn. Never take anybody's word for it. Never follow charismatic leaders. You are the leader. Like you know, it's like the Terminator. You are the revolution. You are the resistance. Everybody themselves. Think for yourself. That's, that's all there's to it. Don't follow leaders. That's a great, a uh, great piece of advice. It's, you know, the, you, you confront the big grizzly bear in the woods. Just back away slowly. Stefan Verstappen, author of The Art of Urban Survival and Defense Against the Psychopath. Hey, thanks for spending some time with us. Richard, I'm so glad that you had me on. I've been a big fan, and uh, keep up the good work. Appreciate it, Stefan. Thank you. When we come back, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, a roundup of paranormal news here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is one of the leading experts on the paranormal with more than 50 books published by major houses on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias. Her work is translated into 15 languages. She's worked full-time on the paranormal since 1983, and she joins us once a month right here on The Conspiracy Show. Rosemary, how are you? I'm doing well, Richard, getting ready for a very busy uh, summer on the road, lots of major events coming up, new books coming out, always something in the works. Excellent. Well, that's good to know. Busy is good. Listen, uh, it's time for our, our Paranormal News Roundup, and I wanted to start uh, with uh, this one I thought was right down your alley, having you haven't written, written a, uh, a major encyclopedic work on vampires. Uh, we're hearing now about this new vampire therapy, which could reverse aging, according to scientists. What do you make of that story? There's a, quite a lot to it, actually. It's very interesting to see science and folklore merging in this regard, because from a folklore perspective and folk magic perspective, blood has always had the power to rejuvenate. And, uh, of course, the, the vampire uh, in many mythologies takes the life force through energy or through blood in order to sustain some sort of physical life or presence after death. Uh, there are many uh, customs as well in uh, societies around the world to consume the blood of enemies, for example, in order to imbibe their characteristics, their strength, their wisdom, their courage, their valor. And so we have uh, indications that people have always intuitively felt that drinking blood would bring benefit to the body. And so now here we have science saying that the blood of the young could benefit the elderly by rejuvenating the body in some way. So uh, it's a very interesting convergence of beliefs. Uh, but that potentially opens up with just a, an an enormous moral and ethical quagmire, doesn't it? I mean, uh, the elderly need the blood of the young. I mean, 
what do we do with this information? I mean, how, what, is, what are the applications here? I, I know. Is there going to be a future where all of us, as we get into aging, we're going to become vampires in a way, you know, seek out uh, t- blood transfusions? Are young people going to be encouraged to make blood donations in order to, uh, to keep the elderly healthy? Well, there may even be some monetary things to consider. When, when you look at the cost of caring for uh, aging people, and for the diseases and conditions that occur as we age, uh, would there be pressure um, from society, from governments, from the healthcare system, uh, to uh, to cause young people to uh, to pony up on a regular basis? There could be a lot of moral and ethical issues here. This is a very interesting development. I just had this horrible image of uh, some octogenarian, you know, filing his uh, dentures into a pointy, to a set of pointy fangs and attacking young school children. It's just, it's too horrible <laughs> to think about. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing well, actually, about it. Well, we'll probably, probably just line up for the, uh, the infusion, uh, you know, like, uh, like you would donate blood. You'd be on the under end of it. You'd be getting it. Uh, but still, it's um, it, it's some interesting developments in science that um, put some validity to ancient folklore beliefs and also pose some very interesting ethical questions for the future. Um, so I think we'll have to see what bears out in the research. Mary, Queen of Scots, was she not uh, known as Bloody Mary? Was she not the one who would actually bathe in the blood of uh, of young of young uh, virgins or whatever the case was? Well, that famous case was Elizabeth Bathory from ah. Europe, and she lived in the 1500s, but she did believe that. Uh, and the story goes, and a lot of it's legend, but there is some fact to it, that uh, as she got older and started to lose her beauty, she uh, discovered that, um, or she felt at least, that blood splashed on her skin seemed to have a rejuvenating effect to it. So uh, the legend goes that, that she started bathing in blood, and she needed more and more blood, and she required the blood of virgins, because here we have the young, healthy blood, and, and uh, she believed that it was keeping her youthful looking. So apparently she did do away with a lot of uh, peasant virgin girls who were lured into the castle to be servants and never came out again. Uh, when the, the crimes were discovered, her own relatives had her imprisoned, uh, in uh, a cell in the castle, and uh, that's where she ended her days. All right, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us, our paranormal investigator, as we uh, discuss our paranormal news roundup. Listen, when we come back, I want to talk to you about this video that's that's gone viral. It's, it's rather spine-chilling, and it shows the moment uh, on a security camera when a man is knocked to the floor by what appears to be some shadowy figure and then dragged along a corridor, all captured on a security camera. We'll get Rosemary Ellen Guiley's take on it when The Conspiracy Show continues right after this. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and um, anxious to get your take on uh, this one, Rosemary. Uh, the video uh, appears uh, to show a man being knocked to the floor by some shadowy figure and then dragged along the corridor before the uh, uh, the man gets up and uh, you know runs very quickly in the opposite direction. Uh, what do you think? What, you've seen the video, obviously. What do you make of it? 
I'm highly skeptical of it. All right. Bear in, <laughs> bear in mind that I deal with cases all the time where people report being attacked by spectral entities and demonic entities, and these things are real. People do get attacked, and they have physical effects to show from it, bruises and cuts. They talk about being grabbed, choked, strangled, pressed on, uh, even uh, attempts to drag them out of their bed, and these are real phenomena. But something like this, it just raises too many red flags with me. One, uh, as, as it states on the Internet, the origins of this video are not known. Well, if it's a real security camera in a real place, why don't we know that? Secondly, this, this attack seems to be unprovoked. Guy's walking down a corridor and something shadowy drags him across the floor. It's highly unusual for something like that to, to take place in such a physical and visually documentable way. Uh, when entities attack people in genuine supernatural cases, uh, it's part of a syndrome of phenomena where these people have been targeted and a whole host of things are going on besides the physical attacks. So, uh, you know, a guy walking down a corridor and suddenly he's assaulted by something supernatural, it, it, it just doesn't ring true with the patterns that have been documented by paranormal researchers for a very long period of time. Well, you're right. The article um, was all over the place. I'm reading about it in the, uh, the Daily Mail online, which is in the United Kingdom, the London uh, Mail. And uh, uh, I've seen the video. Uh, if, it's a, if it's a fake, I mean, the software they have now is, is incredible. In fact, we're, we're not too far from the day, I think, when, when video will be inadmissible evidence in court because it's so easily manipulated. But I'm looking at the article, and you're right, there's nothing in here that indicates uh, where this came from. Um, I mean, the, the, uh, the closed circuit TV is date stamped and time stamped, January 23rd, 2013, and it's about a quarter to midnight, uh, according to the, uh, the counter in the top left-hand corner. But there's nothing else, nothing else indicating where this came from. Uh, is there anything else in the actual video? I mean, I looked at it. I must have watched it uh, at least a dozen times. And uh, I don't know. It, it's very well done if, if it's a hoax. It's a very well-produced little uh, vignette. I have seen other fake videos. In fact, they've come out of the U.K. And uh, off the top of my head, I can't attribute um, the Daily Mail to being a participant in it. But uh, some years ago, there was a video that uh, also uh, went viral on the Internet about a, a, a ghost coming out of a door at Hampton Court uh, Palace. And uh, the, the palace uh, was used by Henry VIII, and it's famous for being haunted by Henry VIII and one of his uh, beheaded wives, I think it was Catherine, one of the Catherines. And uh, this figure that comes out of the doorway is this dark hooded figure. Well, it went viral, and then it was debunked as, as a fake video. So these things do surface on the Internet from time to time. And as you just mentioned, Richard, the technology is so sophisticated these days that you know, people in their own homes can do amazing things to uh, create certain effects. Uh, I watched the video over and over again, and it just it sets off too many red flags with me. It just doesn't look genuine. Wouldn't it be great, though, to finally have some documented evidence on tape does such evidence exist, do you think? Have you seen any videos that, that you think pass the, uh, pass the test? I have not yet, and it's very hard to come by. For, for one thing, a lot of times when people are having these uh, paranormal encounters, they're in a slightly altered reality. Uh, we have these encounters in these bridge places between our reality and other realities, 
And so we're sort of phased out. Uh, sometimes we're in altered states of consciousness, we're in a semi-dream state, or even uh, awakened from, from dreaming. Uh, they just don't happen when we're walking down the street or walking down a hall during the day. Um, it's not unusual for people to feel watched, to sense presences, but these are subtle things, and they seldom are dramatic enough to register uh, on video like that. Paranormal investigators keep trying to get that dramatic piece, and it is very elusive. I've seen so many things with my own clairvoyant senses over the years, and I haven't been able to capture what I experience in a photograph. Rosemary Ellen Guiley joins us here on The Conspiracy Show once a month, and uh, you heard it here. She is declaring the that uh, closed-circuit security camera footage of a man being knocked to the floor by a shadowy wraith as a hoax and a forgery. All right. Uh, kind of disappointed to hear that, but what are you going to do? <laughs> uh, I want to get your take also on this story of a couple in Pittsburgh. It's an entire family, really, um, uh, telling their troubling story about living life inside a demon-possessed house in a new book. Do you know about this case, Rosemary? I have not had the benefit of uh, personal investigation uh, on this property or with this family, but I am aware of this case, and I have read about it, and it does have all the hallmarks of genuine haunting experiences. I've dealt with cases like this myself over the years. A family moves into a place and something is resident in that home, and it starts acting out against uh, the family. Uh, what's puzzling to me about this case is um, the, the husband said that uh, things start happening, you know, low-level poltergeist things, faucets turning on and off, radios going on and off, a very common uh, haunting phenomena. They, they were there from the get-go, and it went on on a chronic low level for 10 years. And then suddenly, in 2003, escalated. Well, things just don't escalate without a reason. So what's missing here is why did things start to escalate? Uh, that's very puzzling to me. But at any rate, uh, assuming that there is a reason for the escalation, then things got progressively worse, which is the pattern in this kind of haunting. And it is true that oftentimes when exorcists and uh, other experts are brought onto the scene to try and alleviate the situation, it gets worse before it gets better. So the things they describe are very real, and they do happen to people. Well, this family, uh, it's a family of four from what I understand, and the mother, uh, it's the Cranmer family, uh, and again, this is documented in their book called The Demon of Brownsville Road. Uh, she says that the um, that she and her two children all spent time in psychiatric facilities due to uh, to some of the things they experienced. Sometimes people get very destabilized by this, and so that's not uh, surprising to me uh, to hear that. Um, if people are very religious and things happen that really challenge their religious beliefs. Uh, that can seriously undermine somebody's uh, view of stability in the world. Like, what, what can I count on? Uh, and children can be traumatized by this sort of thing. So on the surface, uh, based on their testimony, uh, what they say is true to pattern. And uh, some of the comments, um, I, I do know Adam Bly, who's one of the uh, demonologist experts who was brought in to comment on the case, 
And Adam and I have had many discussions about uh, demonic influences and what they're capable of doing. And his observations are uh, also fit the pattern of um, some of these cases that many of us on the dark side of investigations see uh, repeatedly. Uh, uh, this case could be an extreme example. The, um, again, the mother uh, talks about bleeding walls broken metal crosses among just a few incidents the uh, the family claims occurred are these are these um, known to you these symptoms bleeding walls have you heard of such a thing uh yes i have and um discussions and documentation of this sort of thing like mysterious things that appear on walls like mysterious substances that ooze down walls uh, or stains that appear on walls uh, broken objects, and in demonic cases, uh, some of the things that would be targeted for that sort of poltergeist effect uh, are sacred items like crucifixes, pictures of, uh, for example, the religious figures, Jesus or the Virgin Mary, statues. Uh, it, it's sort of a, a, a flaunting of, uh, it's a power thing. It's like, uh, you know, your religious power isn't enough to overcome me. Uh, and similar things happen in other extreme hauntings as well where certain things will be targeted. But, yes, I have heard that about things appearing on walls. Uh, there are apparitions. People will be attacked at night. They'll have nightmares. Their health will begin to deteriorate. And for some people, that's a psychological thing. Their psychological health deteriorates. Uh, it depends on how they're how vulnerable they are and how they're being affected by the presences there. Uh, again, the, the big question that's hanging out for me is why did it escalate? And uh, maybe there is a reason for that, but without that reason, I, I don't understand why things just suddenly went from um, a very low level to an intense level. All right, uh, Rosemary, I got to get your take on this. We just have about uh, three and a half minutes, and uh, this is a real bizarre story. Uh, this is a, a very uh, sort of small sect of, of Buddhism in Japan, uh, where the adherents practice live mummification, the living mummies of Japan. What pray tell is this all about? This is a procedure for. Uh, it's a way for transcending death. And various mystical traditions have addressed this, that is there a way to bypass normal physical death in order to attain enlightenment? And this is, uh, from our perspective, a macabre and creepy process of uh, poisoning the body and depriving it over a period of uh, about three years uh, and then entombing yourself. You become a walking skeleton and you're... They, they uh, uh, consume this toxin that flushes fluids out of the body and desiccates the body, and then they entomb themselves uh, and to the point of death. And if they can become, like, um, mummified, if they can succeed in mummifying themselves, they do die physically. But in the process of that, they are supposed to attain this enlightenment, and they're called, uh, you know, the living mummies. They, they attain some sort of Buddhahood. Well, this to me is a very extreme way of attaining enlightenment, but there are other extreme ways of uh, attempting that as well. And this bypassing of the physical death 
uh, seems to be an important part of the process that only a few people literally have the stomach to pursue. So they actually start this mummification process, um, I guess, you know, once they get to a certain advanced uh, age and they decide, okay, things are winding down, I'm going to start mummifying myself, and they start taking these poisons and toxins. They start with a very severe diet of, like, seeds and nuts, uh, and uh, according to the descriptions of this process, it it speeds the... um, the expulsion of fluids from the body. You attempt to desiccate the body as much as possible, and you literally almost starve yourself to death before uh, you entomb yourself in a sitting lotus position. And uh, then there's this other bizarre procedure, breathing through a tube. Once they're entombed, they breathe through a tube, and as long as they're alive, they ring a bell once a day to indicate that they're still alive. And then at some point, they are going to expire. And when they no longer ring the bell, then they are uh, finally sealed up. And then after a period of time, uh, the tomb is broken open. And if the mummy is preserved, uh, then it's, it's, it's like a Japanese version of sainthood. It's the incorrupt body, so to speak. Might and uh, it's, it's a symbol of having attained some sort of enlightenment in this process of bypassing traditional physical death. Well, I have another way I plan on transcending death, and that is by not dying. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Rosemary, thank you. We're out of time. I appreciate it, and uh, we will talk next month. Thank you, Richard. Good night. Good night. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com. Thanks, Tim Spreen, back next week with a brand-new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. What kitchen gadget is so essential to food safety that no home should be without it? I'm registered dietitian nutritionist Toby Smithson. A food thermometer isn't just for meat and poultry. It will help you avoid food poisoning from egg dishes, casseroles, and leftovers by ensuring they're fully cooked by reaching a safe minimum internal temperature. Heat leftovers and casseroles to at least 165 degrees and egg dishes to at least 160 degrees. You'll find more food safety tips at homefoodsafety.org.